Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Keith. On this episode we'll be talking about the documentary film Doctor Who Am I? About Matthew Jacobs and his reintroduction to the world of Doctor Who, fandom and conventions. And we'll also hear an interview with him that, uh, that Jason did at L.I. Who and also with the film's other director, Vanessa Yule. But first, there's just time to talk about our recent visit to the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi in Allendale. So we, uh, we went to an event over there with Graham Harper and Sophie Aldred as guests. And that was your first time at the museum? It was, yes. And by recent, you mean October. But about <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this at the end of January. Um, yes, I'd never been before because there's no public transport. There's no access to it. It's a museum literally in the middle of nowhere. So if you don't have somebody who can drive you there, you can't go. Yeah, that, that, uh, that is unfortunate. But I think uh, because Neil built it in his own basement. I mean, it is brilliant. He's literally just built in his own house, hasn't he, downstairs. Just thought, I'll have a science fiction museum in my basement, which he's achieved. So, uh, And he's packed so much in. It's absolutely amazing. Considering it is a tiny space, isn't it? I mean, you'll probably fit into your kitchen about four times. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, it has got so much in it. And uh, it's, it's a science fiction museum in sort of BBC busting ways, isn't it? It's got... Things from other franchises, but it is mostly Doctor Who, really, isn't it? Yeah, the the bulk of it's Doctor Who. There's a few bits from sort of Blake Seven, and and he was handing over a Triffid, which I thought was going to be a Triffid, but it wasn't. It was one of the little model Triffids that they did uh, for the uh, model shots in the day of the Triffids, which was going to Rachel Hayho. Is that right? Yeah, so I think yeah. Rachel Hayho gave him it to restore, and now it's on display in the museum. So um, yeah, one of the many exhibits that's um, that's worth looking at. I. Uh, I never really pass an opportunity to recommend it to any Doctor Who fans that can go to it. There's there's stuff from all of the first seven Doctors eras in there. Uh, Colin Baker quite well represented, I think. Isn't <laughs> yes, there's got quite a lot for that. Yeah. Got Malin Tecker's costume. It's quite a bit from season twenty two, certainly. Yeah. yeah, there's the Cyberman, isn't there? From Attack of the Cyberman and um, the. Oh, name's gone out of my head. The baddie from the Twin Dilemma. Nestor. Uh, Nestor, yeah. Fake fan. Yeah. <laughs> and it's spectacular good timing. They had Sophie Aldred there, and it was literally the week after Power of the Doctor, I think, wasn't it? Or the fortnight yeah. later, something like that. that six days after the broadcast of Power of the Doctor, so that was fantastic. And she had stuff and gossip and things we've never heard before, because the best wood in the world sometimes, which we will probably come to later with the recollections from uh, guest stars at these events, you tend to have heard the stories quite a few times over the years, um, but to know this was like new, new things. Yeah, it felt very privileged to be hearing new anecdotes. Uh, probably the first people to hear hear these new anecdotes as well at a convention. So, so that was fantastic. And some of the other guests obviously acknowledged that that Sophie would be the the the, the main the star turn. But yeah, uh, the uh, so they sort of said, "Well, get our questions out of the way a little bit, and then, <laughs> and then there's more time." For it was Sophie nicely informal, though, wasn't it? It's was like you just sort of. Uh, poodle up to people and have a quick word and when your confidence was up to <laughs> approach them because and uh, it wasn't sort of like a comic con you just sort of like it was like a big hall wasn't it and the people sat there and you just sort of like uh, yeah girded your loins and sort of like say hello really when you sort of plucked up the courage but no everybody there was really nice and it was sort of just enough people there to make it comfortable wasn't it yeah then there was a showing of uh, a film at like from uh, the chappie does myth makers when was it 
about uh, about the actual uh, museum itself, which is quite jolly. So. Yeah, Keith Barnfather. It was a film about the yeah about the creation of the museum. Uh, so that yeah, that was really really interesting. And uh, yeah, the whole thing was literally in a, in a church hall. So it was it's quite a nice kind of homely atmosphere. And like you say, the meet and greet I think lasted for three hours. So mm-hmm. there wasn't huge queues like you would get at a Comic Con type event. Um, it was a case of you know, you had quite a bit of time to have a little conversation with... And a with bar with Daleks in it. Yeah, Which yeah. is an image I shall <laughs> probably take to my grave because it was marvellous. So. Yeah, that was great. I've, uh, I think I'm sure I've posted those photos, but I, I can post those again with um, uh, with this podcast. And, and also, you've recently been to see the stars of TV's Doctor Who on I stage. I did. I went to Lancaster because it was as far north as they were coming to see um, The Hound of the Baskervilles starring the great Colin Baker. And there was Flower Child there, and there was Davros <laughs> as well. So it was it was done as a because I thought, how are they going to do this on stage? But it was done as a radio show, which was excellent. So they all got the chance to do different voices. And there was a lady there who was doing sound effects, and they were all sort of like giving her looks and things like that, which is sort of added to the atmosphere. But rather marvelously, on the background, there was a uh, TARDIS on the desk as well. So oh, there was fantastic. like a little nod to why probably why a lot of people were there. But it was quite a good crowd because there was people there who was obviously sort of Doctor Who fans. There was people there who were sort of regular theatre goers, but there was also the Sherlock Holmes fans as well. So it wasn't sort of like uh, like a great Who event or a great yeah. Sherlock Holmes event. It was quite a nice mixture, which was quite jolly. So yeah, it was a good day. So that was uh, also Dee Sadler and his Terry Malloy. Um, That's the one. And Nigel Fares, who does lock a big finish. Oh, okay. So he was very good as well. So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. So is that still on tour? Um, I believe it's finished, but hopefully it, it did incredibly well, apparently. So they might be looking to do another one. So oh, whether it be the same cast or not, I don't know, but it, it was uh, worth a visit. If it's done as a radio play, maybe Big Finish will... I did ask them that, but apparently not, no, because I thought they could do an audio version and flog them on the door when people were leaving, but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, apparently not, so... <laughs> yeah. I suppose Big Finish have got their own Sherlock Holmes range, haven't they? True, and plus there's sort of like various rights issues with um, still, even though I think most of Sherlock Holmes is out of copyright oh. now, I think the... Uh, the Conan Doyle estate is clinging on by their fingertips to grasp every last penny they can get out of it right. before it finally leaves them entirely. So I think a lot of times it's just easier not to bother. Uh, I, th- I assume that would be well up. I think right. it's more or less now. I think it's the uh, the latter stories which uh, still were problematic. So if you mention bees, you're in trouble and that kind of stuff. Right. But, uh, I think that's probably over now. But uh, I know they were clinging on tenaciously towards the end. Right. And also, in the last few days, we've had the now traditional Blu-ray collection trailer for Season 9, with Katie Manning reprising her role as Joe Grant. In an incredibly poignant little advert. Yeah. I think these are essentially adverts, these little mini-adventures are really good. And I have to say, it was really very poignant at the end. There was sort of like the mention of Stuart Bevan yeah. and the character he played, which is really quite um, heartstring-tugging, so yeah. Yeah, it was to get the clip from the Green Death and from the previous, the season eight trailer, I think. Ten, possibly. Can't remember which. It was one with the Autons, wasn't it? So it must be um, eight. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Sure, it was, uh, yeah, sure, it was season eight. So that, that and, and that was to, it sort of suggested, you know, the span of time that they'd, uh, you know, the characters had been together. Uh, and the cute little baby sea devil as well which is the first time we've seen uh, a baby sea devil somebody described it the other day as the best sea devil story so. yeah. <laughs> 
And there is an argument for that. So. <laughs> it did make me think, maybe they should go the Mandalorian route with the next series and have a baby sea devil companion like Grogu. Oh. Well, it is Disney now, so who knows? Who knows? I Ooh, think, who knows? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. You know, maybe at the end of um, Legend of the Sea Devils, when the Doctor and Yaz were on the beach, you know, one could have just crawled in, <laughs> crawled into the TARDIS. Are you excited for this box set? Yes, always excited for these box sets, always. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's some great stories in this one. So um. acquiring it is less traumatic because I had a bit of a you know, thing with season two. I ended up with about four of them in the end. <laughs> 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 Losing faith with various uh, people who said they could no longer um, get it for me, and I promised to get one for somebody else as well. And so I sort of ordered in a quick panic of lots of other folks, and then ended up with four, as I say. So. <laughs> Then to find there was sort of like no um, uh, behind the sofas in every episode, so I was a bit disenchanted by it by the end. <laughs> yeah, I think they don't seem to sell out as quickly. I think now that uh, your people know that there's the standard editions coming further down the line. I think they possibly also had underestimated how popular they would be at first. Yeah, I think it was much. I mean, it was, they've always been advertised as a limited run, but I don't think. Initially, they're a lot more limited than they've the, the probably subsequently proved to be because I think in an age where it's like a physical media is supposed to be dying, mm. I think they're probably a little surprised about how dedicated we are as collecting stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, because there's there's no download option, is there, for the additional material for the behind the sofas and the? No, the I believe not. Like no, that, so. So, uh, yeah, or at the moment, anyway. I guess I'll come in the future, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think the last two or three. With a slight think, tweak on it to make us buy it again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm right. So in the last two or three are, are still available in the limited edition packaging. So they're not they're not selling out in the way that some of the early sets did, and then uh, you know going for an absolute fortune on eBay because scalpers was you know sort of. A, Which is a pity, really, because I could do with selling a few. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've got uh, nieces and nephews have got very predictable presents coming yeah. up for their uh, birthdays <laughs> in the next few weeks. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you hang on to them for a few years, you know, you might sort of... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the big problem with the season two box set it was it was season two, which, best will in the world, is not the greatest. So. It's TV history. Starts well, but... I was doing, started another grand rewatch, and I have sort of ground to the halt. Now, most people say it's during the sensor rides, but I have ground to a halt in the middle of season two, so I need a, a boot to get me going again. <laughs> Maybe because it had just come out. Maybe it was just season two fatigue because it, yeah. <laughs> it was everywhere at one point, wasn't it? So That's it. Well, we, we've got a podcast review of season two coming up on Trap One. So. Oh, I fed you that one. That one was... <laughs> I feel like I don't want to regard myself as a fan. I'd rather be the one who's worshipped. Worshipped or blamed. I think at the end of the day, probably both. I wrote The Eighth Doctor, played by Paul McGann. It's a bit of a responsibility, I think, that we have. You know, stories are powerful. Mythologies are powerful. My job was to write a TV movie pilot with the hope that it would spawn a new American Doctor Who series. The American fans, they are the diehards. There's a whole community of people that do this. They love this thing that society says you shouldn't love as much as you do. I didn't go to conventions for a very good reason. Be nice. I thought the fans would kill me. 
So we're going to be talking about Doctor Who Am I. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, we're probably not going to um, avoid spoilers on this. We're probably going to talk about it in, in depth. So, so Aren't we? That was. <laughs> if, I was going to give away a major plot point. No, no, that's what I mean. We will, uh, we will, be, talking about, uh, we will be talking about it in detail. So uh, if you haven't seen it yet, and I, I think I'm right in saying that the DVD isn't out in the United States yet. I know you can get it on... Um, Apple download because a friend of mine has done it. He hasn't got a physical copy. He's downloaded it, so I know it's available that way. I don't know whether uh, where, but I know it is possible to do so. Yeah, so maybe it is available in the United States. And I know that there's going to be a screening at the forthcoming Gallifrey One convention, and I think Matthew Jacobs is in attendance to that as well to uh, to present that one. So this covers. Matthew Jacobs' sort of reintroduction to the world of, of Doctor Who and Doctor Who fandom for the first time since 1996 when he wrote the TV movie. I thought it was slightly, slightly odd when, when the movie opens and, and he says that um, he says we, th- we were sure we could make a long-running show, but our big mistake was to make the Doctor half-human um, and, and to have a kiss. And he says sort of like that's, that was two fatal errors, but... I don't think the reason it wasn't picked up for a series was because of the half-human kiss. I think that's no, it's remotely, it's completely untrue. It was because it was up against Roseanne, basically. But I think that's just a hook to grab us, isn't it? So it's, if there is a trailer for it, that would sound good on it. Yeah. And it is perceived fan wisdom that that is the big problems with it was the kiss. And But yeah, but I, I suspect that was just a hook because it's a strange thing to introduce. And yeah. it's a, it's a, it's an interesting and poignant documentary, but mm-hmm. it's very difficult to describe because a friend of mine was saying, should I watch it? And I was trying to describe it to him. And I thought, well, how do you describe this? Because it's, it's both very personal and very philosophical. It's also quite, um, it's, it can be quite washed at times. It's, it's a fascinating watch, really. I kind mm-hmm. of assumed when I, it was going to be just be sort of like a, like a glorified myth makers. I was thinking it would just be this chap being interviewed, a few clips of him attending conventions. And it is so not. It is a natural film following this uh, man's progression through um, rejoining fandom after having felt either excluded from it by himself or um, how he was uh, being perceived or just not wanting it as part of his career, really, and then sort of accepting it latterly because even admits at one point he needs the money and he says that Hollywood is an is a ageist place and mm-hmm. now he has to create his own films I suppose best win in the world Doctor Who fans are a guaranteed market aren't we so it's, if you're going to make a film it's a, probably a good thing to make one about yeah it's interesting because he reflects on that doesn't he when he's mm. it's very reflective piece I think that was the word I was struggling for it's, it's incredibly reflective I mean you get an insight into this man it's more than just him sort of like um, turning up to conventions, sort of like being sort of eye rolling at the fans and then disappearing. You, you do get an insight in him as it goes on. You get you learn more and more about him. Mm. You learn more and more about his past, which is quite really very poignant and sad. You start learning about his father, who was in the Gunmakers, and that's really quite poignant as well, isn't it? So it's mm. uh, it's it's hard to describe. Yeah, I think um, as we'll hear in the interview um, with Jason. Things started to happen, I think, around the 50th when Night of the Doctor came out. Mm. And he talks about how that reignited some interest in, in the TV movie. And then he was debating whether or not to accept some invitations to conventions. 
and that's when his colleague Vanessa said, well, you know, maybe there's a film in this. And the whole thing, I think, he's filmed over the course of a year, so he visits various conventions. There's at least two, isn't it? It's uh, Gallifrey One and... Um, L.A. Who. L.A. Who, yeah, at least, Island, yeah. Who, yeah, which is... Plus he meets sort of various folks along the way, which is equally fascinating. Yeah, he visits some fans in their homes and things. So, so to go back to what, what he describes initially as the two fatal flaws of the, of the TV movie, which, as I say, it, I think is, is not why Fox executives <laughs> decided not to make a TV series of it. I mean, the kissing thing seems so old hat now after all these years of the new series. But I do remember at the time it was it was a big bone of contention because I mean I mean there wasn't the sort of like the, um, the Twitter art as there is now but even the letters columns of um, like sci-fi magazines it was a huge uh, bone of contention. I mean they, they addressed that in the fact they think it's sort of like uh, sort of uh, loveless geeks could see the Doctor <laughs> as a as a character like them sort of loveless and alone and joyless. And yeah. then suddenly there he was, sort of like getting uh, Daphne Afbrook, which is a fairly uh, yeah. <laughs> impressive first hit in a way. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's his uh, Matthew Jacobs' conversation with with Philip Siegel, isn't it? Who mm. was the uh, was the producer of the TV movie, and he uh, and is incredibly successful now. Yeah, but you sort of see Paul Matthew Jacobs sort of standing outside these offices before he's led into the throne room, yeah. <laughs> where all his uh, like achievements are sort of on the walls around him. I did feel so sorry for him in that moment. And basically, he's nervous about him because um, Siegel's just basically described him as mad previously, hasn't he? He's really taken that to heart, you can tell. Yeah. He mentions that a lot. And there's an incredibly awkward hug. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, because, because early, quite early in the film as well, Jacobs says that the, the Regenerations book that Siegel co-wrote with Gary Russell, he, mm. said, oh, he said some, some personal things about me which aren't true or something like that. And that was quite tantalising, but he's never really delved into in the film. And then he's never, he doesn't really confront Philip Siegel about. And I thought that was maybe where it was going when when he went to interview him. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was Philip Siegel that, that, that put forth that theory that maybe Doctor Who fans didn't like the kiss because uh, he was basically saying a lot of incels, wasn't it, that, mm. <laughs> that, that, that saw him as a hero. But I mean, I... But I mean, also, I mean, from my perspective, he was sort of like having a sexless character, especially in the you know, 80s when I was a teenager. It sort of took the pressure off him. He could sort of like be of any gender, really. Yeah, and yeah. you could project onto that what you wanted. As soon as that kiss became definitive, that changed it a lot. It did for me at the time, anyway. But um, as you get older, you care less about these things. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I remember that when the TV movie came out, I was, uh, I guess I was, what, 16? I just remember being <laughs> tremendously excited, like the, just all the, uh, all the, you know, we knew it was coming for like a, what, a year or two beforehand, reading about it in Doctor Who magazine. Mm. It's so exciting. And I think, if I remember rightly, I think, the, did the VHS come out the Monday before the, before it was broadcast on Bank Holiday, I think it? you could queue up at midnight and buy it. Yeah. Quite I, early on in some places. Naturally, in good old Carlisle, that was never the case. But I think, uh, yeah, I, say, I don't think the Woolworths in Workington, where I was at the time, was opening at midnight for Doctor Who either. But um, I remember going to buy it after after sixth form. You know, I mean, buying it like a few days before it was broadcast. Just mm. <laughs> that, that was like the level of excitement in the Woolworths, glowing the dark, covering everything. Um, and I absolutely loved it, watching it. I, I don't really remember being that bothered by either the kiss or the half-human thing. And, and I suppose in a way it's shown that they were 
you know, kind of ahead of the curve and, mm. and, you know, predicted the way the Doctor Who would go by having the Doctor kiss because... See, I don't think I actually believed it because um, there have been so many rumours of so many films for so long. Yeah. And I drifted away from Doctor Who magazine and I'd sort of like, you know, I sort of like, still like Doctor Who, I'd sort of like drifted away from avid fandom and it wasn't until there was a picture of the console in, um, there was an initiative from the TV zone, there was a picture of the console just printed in it, which you probably would get away with now because like, yeah. it would be quite a major thing to spoil, but it was there. And I said, oh my God, it's real. Yeah. And I remember that back on holiday because <laughs> with my friend, and I was, he was under orders not to disturb me while it was on. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when the uh, TARDIS was sort of like the only title was seen in the time corridor. And I remember he tutted, and I remember giving him this look, which could probably could have frozen. And I don't think he could have frozen like water. And I don't think he still, like spoke for the rest of the hour and a half after that. But uh, no, I just um, I was not that aware of it until it sort of like the publicity mm. started. The that opening as well. I suppose having a bit of a pre-title sequence was new, wasn't it? Mm. The TARDIS in the um, in in the time tunnel is, is like the Eccleston uh, tenant. Titles and that kind of thing. So it does, it, you know, it did have. Um... But the point Jacob's made is that people say, oh, it looks great, it looks gorgeous, the actors are marvelous, oh, the script. And I think that is definitely the theme of this thing is that that has preyed on him for years that all the shortcomings on it is basically people going, oh, it's the script, not that you actors, you're, you were marvelous. Or, oh, no, it looked lovely, the direction was marvelous. Oh, it was the script, wasn't it? Yes. And even um, there's clips of. Um, uh, people at the times or like late documentaries sort of saying, oh, we never got the script quite as good as we wanted or there was interference from outside and all this mm-hmm. kind of things. So this poor chap is basically, for years, or that the whole of fandom thought it was his fault that he wrote this script which yeah. um, affected the movie. I suppose it's another way that it's ahead of its time because that's what everyone says about uh, Matt Smith, Peter mm. Capaldi, Jodie Whittaker. Oh, they're great, but it's the scripts, don't they? I think maybe that was the... Uh, that's what uh, I remember at the time thinking it it was really good telly. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was really good. I mean, it didn't make a lot of sense, but then Doctor Who didn't. No, <laughs> um, no, I, I I really liked it. I think and the half some... human thing made sense of survival. I thought that's brilliant. They've linked it to survival. Why did he teleport back to Earth instead of to Gallifrey when he uh, ran home? That's why he's half human. I thought that solved that. Uh-huh. And. Uh, so I was quite surprised when people didn't go for that and thought, oh, that was a mistake. I thought, was it? I thought that yeah. answered the uh, a continuity error. I thought it was really good. <laughs> that is good. And it looked beautiful. That. I remember the bit mm. with the chickens just thinking that was so bizarre. And I thought, that's a really good Doctor Who. Because I, I thought an American series would be quite formulaic, but it had these wonderful little bits, like it had the bits with the chicken. It had the bit where the Doctor threatened to shoot himself. Yeah. It had that, um, that sort of wonderful professor it was sort of like went om and all that kind of stuff, and I thought, well, that's different. So no, I thought, it was, and it looked, it did look gorgeous. I mean, the console room, yeah, it's. I mean, it's never looked it? better, has it? To be honest, I mean, no matter what they could do these days, it's never been that sumptuous. No, um, I mean, it just it was all on film for the first time. It had proper motorbike chakes in it, and um, I thought the master was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, for somebody, apparently, everybody said that Derek Roberts didn't like any kind of effeminacy. It's one of the campus performance in the entire of Doctor <laughs> Who. It is spectacular. I mean, they appear briefly in this documentary, um, him and his wife, and they come over as really, really quite jolly. You'd think he'd be a big star and be very starry, and he isn't. He comes up as really nice. So, uh. Yeah, well, I learned from this that, that's it, that, I, that was his real-life wife in the TV movie. I never knew that. 
I don't know how I didn't know that. You're looking at me like that was a really well-known fact, but I, I did not know that. So that was uh, that was I thought it was very interesting. I think that was one of his caveats for doing it because he quite likes working with her. So right. I think one of his jobs, if he takes, because he was quite a big you know, big news at the time, was if he sort of like did did stuff. He liked to have a role for her, and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a sweetener, I suppose. But then I think mm. she's actually a very good actress in her own right as well. So uh, yeah. it, it did them no harm, certainly. No, that's really nice, and and you know, nice that as well that he's now doing a bit of big finish as well. So you know, obviously meant enough to him this this one off job in the nineties hmm. that uh, you know. Because I assumed he was doing big finish. I thought, well, maybe his career's in a bit of a decline stuff, but no, he's still doing stuff now and quite uh, uh, quite large roles. It's still so he yeah, must do he it because uh, I don't know whether it was another um, thing of lockdown he could do in a studio, maybe because I think. Uh, for all the the horrors of the pandemic, it's done big finish quite a good turn. Yeah, so. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, they, they've mm. got a lot of David Tennant material, there, mm. haven't they as well? Yeah, they're probably not allowed to use now again, are they? Because uh, it's he's the current Doctor again, isn't he? So whether they can distinguish between the the tenth and the fourteenth or not, I don't know. But because they're not allowed to use the current Doctor. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the reason why he's the 14th Doctor, I wonder, so that they can still release 10th Doctor. Just Big so Finish. Big Finish could release their... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure Disney's, that was Disney's idea, yes. <laughs> Big Finish could still do that. <laughs> so the other, the other sort of big part of this is, you know, we get to see these big American conventions, which obviously I've never been to. I'm hoping to go to... They a, look genuinely terrifying from my perspective. I don't know about yours. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I've sort of heard about them obviously from different people, and and you know, heard podcasts and seen photos and stuff. But, and the carpet, yeah. seen the carpet. <laughs> the, oh yeah, the uh, yeah the famous the Marriott uh, carpet, yeah, which is gone now, I believe. But yeah, I thought that was that was really. I mean, I obviously, love the enthusiasm and it the, just looks so big. It does. My yeah. Gosh. Well, I think I think Alfred was like three thousand. Mm. Um, people that attend and things like that. So yeah, I, I mean, I, and I get nervous if there's a hundred people in the crowd. So that kind <laughs> of event, my gosh, I am I am hoping to go to one of those. I, I'd love to see one. Um, but yeah, it does seem like the uh, there's a lot more cosplay than you get at British ones. The lady that's interviewed on it and she says, "I went to a British convention once." <laughs> it seems like <laughs> people have been pulled off the bus. Yeah, yeah just rounded <laughs> people off at a bus stop and shoved them in a room. And it has to be said, the things we've gone to, people have not been. There's been a few folks in costumes, hasn't there? But not. I mean, I'd say they're the minority, though. Yeah, when we went we've worn to... t-shirts. That's as far as we've gone. The last thing we went to, we didn't wear anything really. We just wore regular no. clothes, didn't we? So. Yeah, yeah, we my clothes are every regular. It's not that, yeah. I'd say we didn't wear, wear anything. It was, uh, it was, it was a cold day in the north. Um, well. <laughs> but yeah, we weren't, uh, we weren't, <laughs> we weren't in costumes or no. uh, or anything like that. There was a handful of people, weren't there? That um, there was a sort of a Tom Baker and, um, and we all ruthlessly stared at them, judging me. Yeah. <laughs> or was that just me? <laughs> And uh, yeah, I think most most of the conventions I've been to, the, the you know, there's, there's always been people sort of dressed up and things. But I'd say generally more people don't probably at most of the British ones that I've been to. Because it kind of divides up, doesn't it? It's sort of like his initial introduction. Then there's sort of like there's a sort of like a philosophical bit about the fans and fandom, and is it enabling? And the, the, there's, there's a bit there about is it because America's more religious in a way, and they're more used to being extrovert in groups and crowds and like being focused on things and then there's sort of like it goes back to him again and his relationship to both Doctor Who his family and acting it's just like a three three act structure so. yeah yeah that, that side of it was interesting the way initially 
he saw himself as apart from it and mm. and, and, um, and a little bit distanced. I did wonder at first whether it was going to be sort of like eye-rolling at the more extravagant fans and stuff. And I think that was quite clever in the way he sort of guides you that when it suddenly undermines that and, suddenly, yeah. and then latterly the interviews um, certain people and the effect that Doctor Who has had on them basically. I mean, one poor lady was widowed very early and it was basically her distraction from grief and there's a a lad who rather gloriously dressed as Peter Davidson, who says that Matt Smith is his favourite doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of like um, says how he was bullied and it was a refuge from that and things like that. And uh, that's all people's personal stories and that cannot be, the importance of Doctor Who to them can never be under underestimated. And it doesn't mock that. No. And even though there's bits of things like Dash Nash book sort of like sort of... Um, like bemoaning the fact that she talks to people who don't always pay her and all this yeah. kind of thing. But so it, it's, it, it looks at both sides of it. But it's also, I mean, Paul McGann's sort of saying, saying he was reluctant at first, and so now how he loves it. Yeah. Then that's sort of like, that's examined as well, because he's sort of, sort of, uh, he has a birthday bash at one of them, and then mm. uh, Matthew Jacobs sort of like takes a video of it, and he said it was like being the presence of the Pope, all these people mm. sort of like, Paying homage to the great McGann and things, it's like yeah, so it's not it's not simplistic in the way it looks at things. No, and that that's a really nice scene because that is where he gets the most emotional, isn't it? Mm. That, that he'd been there to witness that, and you, despite his childhood connection to Doctor, which he talks about, his dad, Anton Jacobs playing Doc Holliday in the Gunfighters, mm. it's almost like not his childhood Doctor, but his Doctor that he helped to. To create, uh, you know, is, is the one that's kind of gone on and developed this following, and, and mm. that's what made it. And goes on now, yeah. yeah and I thought that that was interesting that, you know, that kind of is his own legacy as well. Is is you know how how much he shaped Doctor Who. It's also been, it's a bit of quiet like because he, he was you've seen him talking to various people, various fans, um, and he's he's always coming out with ideas. Yeah. As a writer, comes up with ideas, and nobody likes any of them. No. <laughs> Every single idea he comes up with is sort of like blown out the water by whoever he's talking to, which yeah. is, which I thought was so lovely. Because <laughs> I mean, if it had been a vanity project, he never included that. No, because I did wonder at first whether this would just be a vanity project, uh, project rather. Oh, look at me doing these things. Yeah, wasn't I wonderful? Wasn't it pearls before swine? And he really isn't. Well, it's I more think, about his insecurity, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was dispelled for me in the opening scene when the caption comes up and he's described as a mid-level writer. It says, yeah. Matthew Jacobs, mid-level writer. And I thought that was a nice, self-deprecating little de- description of of, uh, of how he sees himself. <laughs> because the other bit is when he's sitting at the signing table and he's mm. sort of saying, like, well, all of these people, they've kind of had their careers and now they're coming here for some... Uh, has beans or never was is it was just basically sucking up the adulation in effect yeah, yeah to, to be celebrated but then he was saying but yes this is what I'm doing and I, and I do quite like it and it was nice that he met the fan who didn't know who he was mm. but said oh I, I came to it through the TV movie and I love it you know that was a that was a really nice and that just scene. kind of took a step back wasn't it yeah, yeah. It's, that was nice yeah. <laughs> yeah you know the what you really get I think and maybe this is this is more in the American conventions, but what you were saying about how he did such a refuge where 
people who are maybe more shy or introverted and have been bullied and things, you know, it was just a place where they can just go and... It even related to coming out, didn't it? Yeah. You can go there and be yourself. So, so like going to a gay bar, you're going to a science fiction convention, in effect, yeah, aren't you? And like and being then, yourself, you're dressing in a way you perhaps would prefer to in real life or in as a character you would rather be. And yeah, it was fascinating. He's brought up loads of things. He's sort of like, he's sort of... Um, kind of thought well, maybe the doctor being half human because he was sort of like half Jewish and he sort of related it to that then he sort of postulated this idea of like a story set on Gallifrey where the doctor had to hide his as a child had to hide his half um, human side yeah. from uh, the authorities and that was succinctly blown out the water <laughs> I thought actually that was quite good I like that one <laughs> that would be quite interesting because yeah, it, it's never been explored I, I'm thinking I'm right in saying even Big Finish or the spin-off media that has it and I think the occasional way, jokes yeah I, I think what maybe and maybe I don't know if this was deliberately put into the script or whether this is what fans have done afterwards but I think both of the supposedly contentious things like the kiss they can say well mm. He was just really happy. He just got his memory back and he just had this spontaneous kiss in celebration and, and it, there was nothing sexual about it. And the half-human line, that it was just um, just a sort of a, a weird thing to say, just a distraction, just because he didn't want to... Yeah, uh, but by the end, to, you've got like humans opening the eye of harmony because they are also human, as if the doctor is half-human. So that not quite sure that works, yeah. Yeah, well, in, in The Complete History, which for the TV movie has one volume all to itself because I think it covers all the attempts to bring Doctor Who back after, after the cancellation in 1989. So it covers the Dark Dimension thing as well. And once Jacobs comes ab- aboard... Uh, that sort of half-human thing is, uh, you know, is 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 much more prevalent in some of the early scripts. So he, uh, the Doctor, see well, the thing that triggers his memory that his mum was human was seeing a woman in Victorian dress or something like that in a horse mm. and cart, and uh, and then that triggers it. So that was was much more explicit in earlier drafts. And there's actually a thing in, in one of the earlier drafts, which I think sounds really good, where it was set on Halloween instead of New Year's Eve. Excellent. And the master brings the dead back to life, and it's like a zombie thing. Um, and that sounds really, really cool. I mean, in terms of half-human, I mean, he says he's subconsciously channeled Spock. He sort of grudgingly admits later to him, well, mm. subconsciously channeling, like what was at the time an incredibly popular science fiction thing mm. to an American audience who had no relation to Doctor Who at all, was well, not daft, really. That was quite a sensible thing to do, wasn't it? Yeah. Like calling it a camouflaging unit instead of chameleon circuit. Well, to be honest, I suspect more Americans know what the word camouflage means yeah. more cloaking, than chameleon. Cloaking, you said. Cloaking, a big part, yes. So, uh, but I thought, well, that's, that's not daft either, either. So, I mean, like using um, ideas from popular franchises. I mean, Doctor Who steals from popular franchises all the time. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. Hinchcliffe years is just basically the hammer years, isn't it? Yeah. No, so, I mean, absolutely. So that was not, again, not unreasonable. Yeah. But, I mean, and also, I mean, lots of things weren't answered, but then it was a pilot. Mm. So, I mean, if there was a series, a lot of this stuff could have been either retconned or answered later. And that's the other thing, for as much as they find some fans who have contention with it, there's not many fans that you would find who didn't want it to go to a series. Mm. Um, even if, they, even if they, they thought there was weaknesses in the script, we all wanted a series of it. Because a lot of pilots are quite different or not as good mm. as the series that then follows on because, you know, presumably they learn what works and what doesn't and then they've got, you know, a, 
a, a vision for a series instead of a one-off. So, like, you know, we were all really hoping, weren't we, that... Uh, I remember years ago I did a rewatch with what I had and I had the, the movie that was the last episode I watched on it and I remember thinking, what a shame that didn't continue because he, yeah. he sat in the tarn and he's whizzing off. You could have gone to Passage New and that's in the days before there was even Big Finish or anything. That was it, literally, that was McGann's hour and that was the end of Doctor Who. Yeah. So, there was the books, of course, but... Uh, that was it. It's, it's not the same. Yeah. But no, like you say, it is, it is, it is very moving. Because I think the other thing, like you say, that maybe Matthew Jacobs has, has carried this thing that you know people blamed him for a while. But also, there's there's just one line which again he doesn't go into a lot of detail on. But he says that this this would have basically been his ticket to security had had it gone to series. Mm. Then you know, because there's a thing about American series, isn't there? Once you kind of on them that they, they can run for seven years and if they run for seven years... Well, I think he was signed up for that, wasn't he, McGann? Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons he took it because he thought this could be financial security for my kids while they're growing up, wasn't it? Was, I, think yeah. that's, he, I think he said that in the past. That's it. I mean, I've heard people on other kind of... Um, the, these American shows... I don't know why seven years, but, yeah, if 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 they make the full seven years, you basically don't have to work. I think it gets you over the... Hundred episodes, which gets you into syndication. I think you yeah. do seven, something and like then that. the repeat fees. I suppose mm. basically you, you don't you don't have to work again after that. And I suppose the shows like Frasier and Friends that went to ten series basically named their price, didn't they, for mm. each series after that? So nothing like Next Generation stuff. They did they did the seven and were in syndication for years. I mean that basically yeah. getting on the gravy train for life. All the and then the, that, and so. the movies on the back of that. So I suppose that the the downside of if it had been picked up for a series, we may have only got seven years. And whether, I suppose, it would have reverted to the BBC and they would have picked it up, you know, around 2005, like Russell Davis, is maybe less likely because they maybe would have thought, well, it's been done now. Mm. So maybe, you know, well, I think probably in hindsight we're better with that, not getting that series and getting the BBC series that we've had since. With 2020 hindsight. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Or 2020 But then we were robbed of the McGann Doctor, who... Potentially yeah. could have been spectacularly good. He could have been the last ever Doctor, and he could have been brilliant. Yeah, that's true. So, and maybe there would have been movies on the back of it. He's great on Big Finish, but there's little bits where we've actually seen him on the television recently. He's so good; it's ridiculous. So yeah, uh, yeah. so and but then it could have been awful. Mm. <laughs> it might have been cancelled after 13 episodes, and that would have been the nail in the coffin because the BBC could have gone. Well, we brought it back, and it wasn't very good. And yeah, so, and, and you know, it had an American budget; it had everything, and it. Just I think the next story was going to be a western, wasn't it? So it was like. Oh really? I think that was an idea that was mooted. So yeah. uh, that might not have been because sci-fi fans and westerns don't have a good relationship, do they? No, and that, I wonder if that, if you know, that came from Jacobs because his dad was in the you know the the previous Doctor Who Western obviously which well, was standing sets were available maybe if you're doing to do time travel and you're in America we don't have a great deal of history really of the uh, yeah. of the Hollywood variety anyway then you've got to uh, use what you can yeah that's it you've probably got the um, the sort of the back lots haven't you of uh, that sort of um, like wild west towns and things like that so that was I thought the the other scene that was really nice was with the panel was hosted by I think one of the hosts of uh, Radio Free Sky. Oh, Stephen Schapansky. Yeah, where they uh, where they they look at the the gunfighters and, and and he talks about that, which it was a really nice panel, but I felt quite bad that about it, five people there. Yeah, yeah, it's really sad that it seemed to be really. Man, I've gone to panels with Les. 
Yeah. I mean, that, which is always mortifying because you're sitting there and there's some poor person on the stage and there's about three of you sitting there and you're thinking that to say any questions, you think, no, I haven't got anything and nobody else is speaking. Oh, <laughs> no. So at least there was a few folks there and there was a moderator and stuff because, I mean, otherwise it's uh, it's really mortifying. But uh, uh, I think because he was dreading doing it, so maybe not many people there was actually a bonus for him because yeah. he's very nervous. He's either got stage right or can't well, quite see why he needs to be doing it because just to put it in context, his father was an actor in it mm. and he went to see it being filmed as a child. Yeah, and he said it was not long after his mum had died and, and yeah. uh, his and, dad uh, had mental health issues and things like that. So, was, And that was, I mean, his mother died in 63 when Doctor Who started, which is another sort of thing. Then, uh, yeah. it, it sort of says that movies and TV and Doctor Who became a refuge for him, which is, again, related to things, because it's, it's beautifully put together, actually. It flows lovely. The ideas flow so well. Yeah. Um, which makes you wonder if there's an authorial thing rather than a, makes you wonder whether they they had these ideas ahead and they found the the uh, the footage to prove it or whether it just flowed spontaneously. I don't suppose we'll ever know, and it doesn't really matter because yeah, it, it works as a documentary and it works as a film. It does, and I suppose it's filmed over a year, and and these were the and there's a nice anecdote about Jackie Lane, isn't it? Tending because his father, when he was more manic stage, would organise garden fates and things. Yeah, and she, and she turned up as a guest, guest to yeah. in attendance to it. Yeah, and. Uh, Apparently had quite a nice, um, sort of like, uh, spent a little bit of time with him when he was being made to, was dressed as a troubadour or something, <laughs> like singing around in the uh, village. Yeah, he yeah. was made to play the guitar and, yeah. and entertain the guests and things, yeah. Yeah, all, all that kind of stuff is why it made, made me think, really. I When I was nine, my dad died, and that was when I really got into Doctor Who as well. That was mm. So possibly... The same sort of thing, like just escapism, you know, just... Uh, I mean, for me then it was... Uh, the target books really you know it was um, then season 26 came on I loved that and then it was yeah target books and then videos and things so yeah I think there is that element of escapism from you know kind of uh, the harshness of uh, of life and you know there's, there's quite a few examples like you're saying in the documentary about that the, mm. you know, the woman who'd really been sadly widowed quite young and things um, and it's a bit intercut with him as a father to his own children yeah and then a bit later on these little kids are on these things and these hulking great lads come yeah. in and they're, the, <laughs> yeah. and they're the children from before you think oh yeah. my god <laughs> <laughs> that's quite because you, you kind of feel that's a reflective side he's obviously moving Mm. And his ex-wife is there. So he's obviously there's been a change in his circumstances by the look. He's moving from San Francisco to L.A. or something, or vice versa. I've got that wrong. I can't I remember. I think, yeah, there's something like that. Wasn't yeah. There? yeah. And he's sort of saying that he's taking charge of his own career now because mm. Hollywood was basically passing him by, so he's creating his own products now, and apparently very successfully. I mean, he must be proud of this. He's sort of like created this film and it's I've not heard any negative, negativity about it really no I, a few I, folks who say it wasn't for them I think a lot of people thought it was going to be more of the sort of the, the myth maker style of him just sort of being interviewed or just talking about and things like that rather than as a um, than a proper film really it's yeah like, he you know, goes on a, on a journey doesn't he really kind yeah of, it's an exploration uh, of both fandom and of himself in a way yeah and I, and I suppose when you start watching you, you might think that fans are being taking the mickey out of a little bit but that, that's quickly becomes clear that that isn't the case uh, and even you know this this had a cinema release in the UK as well I think mm. some not 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 Carlisle but View Cinemas have, have been showing it so uh, yeah we, you know like you say more successful possibly than uh, than, than they could have hoped because I heard first heard about it because um, Radio Free Scorer were talking about it because as I say they appear in it and um, that's what first drew my attention to it and then it's sort of like mm. Snowball really it's like it mentions and mentions and mentions that uh, 
But he's also, I mean, he sort of says how healthy is it in a way, because he sort of talks about, will my career be, well, he says, actually says, circling my past forever. Yeah. And you think, and the best will in the world, some of um, the older Doctor Who alumni, it could possibly argue that their career is now basically being themselves mm. being ex companions, ex Doctor Who's, ex uh, production people. Yeah, I suppose they, is that a good idea or not? I mean, if you accept, it, if you think, well, no, this is marvelous, brilliant. Yeah. But if you sort of like, because like, you get the feeling he's slightly embarrassed by it, or wondering whether he should be embarrassed by it. Yeah. Because him and Dashney Ashbrook sort of talk about it and they sort of say, is the fans' preoccupation healthy? Mm. And, then and then they sort of actually say, are we enabling them doing this? <laughs> Which I thought was quite an interesting thing because I admit my life is probably possibly could have been better spent rather than being <laughs> dominated by a television show from the 1970s. But uh, it's, I mean, I can't be mad. But on the other hand, we are sat in a room now. We were never met without this Yeah, show. that's it. I've got I, quite, I've, I know five quite close friends, all of whom I've met through Doctor Who, who are not met otherwise. Yeah, I think I'm the same, really. Um, really, since I started podcasting, yeah, I made some really good friends, yourself included, through this. And... And it, you know, as, as I think is clear in documentary, is that it's it's important to a lot of people. It, mm. it is somewhere they can go and be themselves in a way that maybe they feel that they can be at other times. Um, that couple who say, you know, it's a, it's a thing that they've really got in common and that they share. Mm. So it's a, it's a big thing for them as well. So I, I don't know. I think it is. Um, I think it is a healthy thing. And I suppose you know a lot of like you say the older Doctor Who alumni in this country are now probably you know kind of past retirement age but they're getting these opportunities to travel all over the world aren't they you mm. know there's uh, there's conventions in america and canada australia and germany and uh, and all these sort of places so the opportunity to travel and meet people and a lot of them are still acting for big finish as well in a way that oh heavens yes you know maybe they wouldn't get to act um you know, on on TV so much. Getting uh, older, line learning must be getting harder. And yeah, so physically you, doing the job as you get older. Yeah, but I think with Jacobs, that what I hadn't realised was that he wrote The Emperor's New Groove, which mm. uh, you know, it was a Disney movie I remember coming out, and The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which are, they they weren't that big here. I think they were. Kind of remember seeing them occasionally, but I think they was weren't scheduled at a at a good time. I feel like it was one of those things. If you put it on a Saturday afternoon, maybe it would have been quite popular. I can't quite remember where they're on, but I remember it sort of being quite a hard thing to catch. I mean, it's, none of them were my company, but he's obviously been a, a successful writer. I mean, he also wasn't living in poverty. He was like mm. going from quite a nice flat to quite a nice flat. He was sort of yeah. like, uh, obviously wasn't impoverished. So I mean, he's, he's had a, a successful career, which Doctor Who has been a part on which he's either been reluctant to or yeah. suddenly decided to embrace. But, uh, yeah, but I, I have to say, for something I just thought was going to be a bit of sort of uh, behind-the-scenes fluff, it was it's created a lot more sort of thought than I originally, intent, uh, originally thought it would. Mm. I mean, he's incredibly poignant, especially towards the end when he is talking about his, um, his family. I mean, various trigger warnings, something very unfortunate happened to his mother, um, something very unfortunate happened to his father, and mm. things like that. So, I mean, he's not had a... I mean, he says he has a... He had a um, a shit childhood, didn't he? So, yeah. So, and obviously determined not to his own children to have that. And you don't usually get that kind of thing from a Doctor Who documentary. No, 
That's true. He has a way more depth, like you say, than you get from a myth makers or because it is about his whole life, isn't it? Not not yeah. just about his work, I think. And the menu has to be said has got the most irritatingly catchy bit of music on it ever. Because <laughs> as soon as you sort of like got the <laughs> the menu, the DVD or the uh, comes up, it's in your head for the rest of the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I was surprised the number of clips from Doctor Who. Yeah, so that showed there's money there as well because they must have paid for that. Even yeah. though I think a lot of it is uh, trailers and stuff, especially yeah. the Eccleston stuff. But yeah, so there's more than. Yeah, there's, I was to say that there must be fairly high production value, but there's a lot of, um, I think, was it crowdfunded? Because there's a lot of names at the end. So I think it was um, um, maybe crowdfunded or um, yeah. something like that, or had a lot of producers anyway. But uh, but it's not a cheapo production. It's like, there's definitely, I mean, it's all on good quality video and stuff. So No, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's, de- it's definitely something I'll revisit as well. Well, that's my well for this. That must be my fourth watch, and uh, yeah, wasn't bored by it. I have to say so. Whereas a few bits of VAM on the DVDs and the Blu-rays and things, I watch once and will know I'll probably never watch again. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, uh, obviously you didn't get to see it at the cinema, but it would have been quite odd, I think, watching it at the cinema in terms of seeing people that we've met mm. uh, at conventions, or, you know, on, on a cinema screen. So. Um, uh, people like Andrew Cartmel and uh, yeah, kind of whether Tucker it, and things. Whether it needs that or not, I don't know because there's not it's sort of like there's no sort of like communal spirit need. It's not like ooh and ahs and things. Yeah, I mean, if there's a crowd of you who are in it together, you can also like point out and rib each other for doing it. Yeah, but uh, I think the intimacy of the television screen this probably works as well for it, to be honest you're not missing something it's not like Avatar to be fair is it you, sort of no, <laughs> yeah. you don't need a big screen it'd probably be nice especially in a large crowd of people you, you always things are always you view things differently like that don't you but uh, I don't yeah. think I missed out not having it on uh, Carlisle cinema screens no probably the optimal thing is is seeing it at convention um, so you know like the Ally Who or the Galley screenings are probably quite nice, especially because part of it's filmed in those places. So you can point out people you know and things like that. Yeah, yeah that's it. That, that's that's going to be quite nice for anybody who's attending those. As I say, I know it's um, it got shown at the Ally Who where Jason recorded the upcoming conversation with with Matthew Jacobs and Vanessa Yule, uh, and it is getting shown at Gallifrey One, which is later this month. <laughs> Another bit I like was the fact that um, he's never taken American citizenship so he's actually a resident alien which I thought was quite nice so yeah. <laughs> he's talking about aliens and I was actually one himself yeah yeah that's uh, that, that's quite apt isn't it oh and the other thing we mentioned that guy who makes the foam costumes and he said he made a foam K1 giant robot in a week yeah I mean it's extraordinary you can see it in the background yeah. if, you, if you didn't know you'd think it was actually made of metal I mean, it's the most astonishing thing yeah, yeah so the, the I guess, you know, part of the skill is in, in making that, but part of the skill must be painting it in such a way that it doesn't look like foam as well. Mm. So, I mean... The cyber Cyberman costume and everything. I mean, you could argue that a lot of the people who talks to are not sort of like standard fans. I mean, you've got people who create those wonderful things. Yeah. He talks to the uh, the girls who create these uh, marvellous cosplays. Mm. And I thought that's quite nice at the end when she's, she calls herself the Regeneration Fairy, doesn't she? And she's yeah. sort of like, she's over the ending titles, which I thought was quite nice as well, because the first time she did it, I confess, I did think, oh, gosh, you'd be really annoyed to be stuck in a lift with. But at the end, I actually thought, actually, no, that's lovely. That was really yeah. nice. So, so it sort of changed my opinion as well, because being sort of like, like um, 
British and old and cynical. I do sort of like, <laughs> admittedly think that, um, sort of like, like, ooh, no, anybody sort of shows any form of um, <laughs> enthusiasm about anything. But at the end, I have to say, they, they won me over by the end. Yes, she was, uh, so, no, I thought they were lovely. Yeah, I think that's a, it's like another level of creativity, isn't mm. it, of inventing your own characters that would that would fit within Doctor Who and things. So it's a nice, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was like somebody was cosplaying Queen Elizabeth and like sort of uh, mouthing a speech, wasn't she? Yeah. And thinking, oh my God, I'd rather die. But then actually when they were talking to her afterwards, she yeah. came over as nice. She was talking about the insecurities and making the costume and how wonderful she felt when she was wearing it. No, actually, that's really nice. Yeah, I think yeah, probably as, as British fans, uh, it's it's so different to us. But mm. um, I do love the enthusiasm. I imagine you get very much caught up in all that by uh, by being there as well. <laughs> yeah, she was managed that. They always sort of mention there's quite a lot of alcohol about as well, which probably helps. Yeah. <laughs> Greyhound trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? So that that's Doctor Who Am I? And as I say, we now lucky to have an interview from Li Who with Jason, US Jason, interviewing. Matthew Jacobs and Vanessa Yule. So I'm sitting now with Matthew Jacobs, the writer of the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie and many, many other movies and TV series over the years, and Vanessa Yule. Matthew and Vanessa are behind the project Doctor Who Am I, a documentary about the 1996 TV movie and that movie's journey through fandom over the years. So we have a lot to discuss, and we'll try to keep it as economical as we can. Matthew, how did you become a Doctor Who fan in the first place? I think it ran in the family, basically. Um, and my father was involved um, in Doctor Who in the 1960s. He was an actor, and so I was a fan as a child. And, uh, and uh, the fandom has come and gone, and uh, um, that's how I got involved, though, because my dad was involved. And as an American fan who can sing every line to the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon from your father's episode, I can certainly relate. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you come to the TV movie in 1996? Um, I got hired because um, I was a... um uh, I was a good fit in terms of having worked with Paramount and having worked with, you know, Spielberg's company and having worked for BBC and having worked for Fox. So they they every and they all kind of trusted me, and I went in with a pitch just like any writer does. Um, but I came on board after they'd been trying to set it up as a as a TV show, um, and it hadn't worked out. And then they thought, well, we'll try and do a backdoor pilot with Fox TV movies, and that's how that came about, really. I know there had been a multi-year effort to get a movie mounted with many other writers involved. Were you yeah. given a lot of things that you must include in the script, or do you, did you have a lot of free reign, blank slate? I had pretty much um, a free reign because they didn't want me taking anything from the stuff that other writers had been trying to do in terms of resurrecting it in the States. So I had pretty much a blank slate, which was good. That's wonderful. And Vanessa, before you came to this project, had you been a Doctor Who fan growing up? I had, I mean, yes. In terms of I had a nostalgic memory of it from it being on PBS in the 1980s. I was a very young, but I I remember watching it with my dad and my family. Um, I loved the TARDIS, and just I, I had vague memories of it. And then I, I think I mentioned at the panel yesterday too. There was a song in like the '90s from KLF, like Doctor Who, Hey the, the TARDIS, TARDIS. <laughs> and 
I just remember being like, ah, I'm so cool. I know what that is, you know? Um, so I mean that song too. Um, but really it was just a nostalgia. That was my fandom. And it wasn't until, I mean, Matthew and I had been making movies together before and I didn't really look at his IMDb and didn't realize that she wrote the eighth doctor, which, um, I freaked out about. I thought that was so cool. And so then it was, I guess, the TV movie that I watched again, or I hadn't seen it before, and I thought it was fantastic, and I didn't know about the controversy surrounding it, which just blew my mind. Um, So then I guess, you know, Paul McGann was my gateway back in, and then I started with the new series. and. And I, I think it's great. I'm I really enjoyed now. it. You, I you did. Would be, you would be reaching out to me and say, oh, oh, I love that. You know, I, I love Eccleston. He's fantastic. And, and you know, because obviously it, when Eccleston came back, it was like this sort of breath of fresh air for the whole franchise in a big way. And, yeah, but there'd always been a romance there in the background. But the whole thing with Rose um, suddenly made the show very accessible, you know, a, around the world, I think it changed it in a massive way. I know for me, I grew up a fan on PBS in the 1980s, right here on Long Island. And yeah. I was very, very excited for the TV movie. But I was in law school at the time, and I wasn't positive, because I didn't have a television that year. And I wasn't positive I'd be able to watch it. So I had friends at home in New York, and from my undergraduate campus in Baltimore, both made me VHS tapes. Wow. And I got the tape in the mail on the same day. So I watched the movie twice. I watched the New York version with the New York commercials, and then I watched the Baltimore version with the Baltimore commercials. Wow. So I saw your movie two hours back-to-back on the same day. With wow. the commercials. And, of course, I had to sit and watch the commercials, too. That's okay. That's, <laughs> That's my good. memory of the TV movie. That's kind of the idea from, yes. from Fox's point of view, anyway. And I've seen it multiple times over the years, and I can recite large chunks of it by heart, which I will spare you right now. <laughs> so how did, between the two of you, how did the documentary, Doctor Who Am I, come to be? Because I know you were filming it at Galley and L.I. Who. Yes. And this was the old, the famous Galley Hotel carpet, which has now mm. been replaced. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. How did that project come together? Um, well, we were, I was in, uh, visiting Matthew in, in San Francisco. We were catching up, um, and because we hadn't talked in a bit, this was in December. It was... 2015, yeah. 2014. 2014. Oh, yeah, December. It was December 2014. Yeah, you're right. And that's when I realized, well, Matthew was being invited to the 50th. That was fun. You talk about that. Well, I was being invited to a rather sketchy, or or to a sketchy convention that that got cancelled. And then um, um, Sean had invited me to, um, to, to Gallifrey to come to a real convention that people didn't even know I was in America. So suddenly they did know because after the, after the, third, after the 50th, the, the, there was reaction to Night of the Doctor. Yes. And I was involved in that reaction and they went, oh, he's here. So I was, that's why I was starting to get invited and I didn't want to go. Um, but Vanessa, you know, who, who, you know, we have a collaboration that goes back a ways. She was very quick to say, well, that's a great story there, you know, going back to that world. And then we, we got excited about the idea of a documentary, and I, and I thought, oh, it should be called Doctor Who Am I? Because that really, that whole question of identity sits under not only um, 
the show, but it also sits under the way in which fans relate to it. They find their identity in some way um, through their relationship with each other as, you know, as a community, and they find it as they're watching the show. There's a lot of, there's a lot of identifying going on in anything that's good. Um, you, we identify and sympathize with main characters. Do you know what I mean? Well, yes. But I mean, it was this genuine reluctance from Matthew, and I know him. He's funny. I always describe him as like a Ricky Gervais, Larry David type of humor. Slightly <laughs> 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 larger, yes. Um, so it was just an opportunity to work together again, and it was... So the conversation was in December 2014, and then we were filming by February 2015. So it was like a love of filmmaking. We're like, yeah, we're just going to shoot a documentary. And then seven and a half years later, it's finally done. We find the story. Things take time to mature sometimes. And we've been very lucky that the the film was finished in time for for this year. Um, which meant that Sci-Fi London um, were, were, were keen and then Melbourne Documentary Film Festival keen. So it's got an identity outside of the Who community in, in the more general film-making community that, and, and, and said Kaleidoscope coming on board as the UK distributors and world sales agents and then Gravitas coming on board for American distribution um, has meant that this is, this is a show that this is a film that's going to be open um, in cinemas, hopefully. Hopefully, in next year, in the 30th. So everything sort of seems to, fingers crossed, landed in the right place. And it's the sort of project that the BBC wouldn't make because the BBC would make it about the show. Yes. Um, and this is this is very much about this community, and it's just been so fantastic to come here to Li Hu and Li Hu seeing its renaissance after the pandemic and seeing you all again. I mean, the, the other night we showed it, and wasn't it great? Yeah, it was amazing. Did uh, you, were you able to see? Well, I have to confess, living out in Brooklyn, it's. On paper, it's a 60-mile drive, but when you deal with traffic on Friday evening, it took me about three hours to get here, and I missed wow. missed the movie, did not oh. even get here in time. So I am You'll very have much to catch it on DVD. Absolutely. <laughs> so in terms of distribution, I know that I heard you say at your panel yesterday that you have you've, it's already been screened theatrically in the UK. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. it's wonderful. Just finished that screening, and now it's now it's available on on Amazon UK and you know and all good Blu-ray and DVD platforms in the UK. And then so it, I mean yeah. the actual release date for Blu-ray um, and DVD is November twenty eighth. Yeah. So, but then... Yeah, a week or so. Yeah, yeah around that, the corner. That'll be Region 2. Luckily, I have a Region 2 player at home, so I'll be able to... Uh, oh, great! ...to yeah. watch. <laughs> and then an American distribution is coming theatrically in 2023, I believe you said. We hope, yeah. We yeah. hope. I mean, well, it was announced in the trades in Screen International and, and a couple of other places. Um, so we're going to have our... It's with Gravitas, so we're hopefully going to have a conversation with them in the next... Probably a couple of weeks. One hopes, yeah. Um, and then we'll kind of have a better idea of what the release schedule is. And speaking of gravitas, Vanessa, you mentioned yesterday that your other filmmaking passion is diametrically <laughs> opposed to Doctor Who and very different thematically. Can you talk to us about that? Well, sure. Um, I mean, it's like my Twitter or my Doctor Who, or my Doctor Who, my Facebook is sort of split between, you know, Doctor Who fandom as well as um, sort of my personal 
family background, which is within the Japanese American community. Um, my document, my thesis film was about the Japanese American incarceration during World War II, because my mom was born on one of those camps. And actually, it was a reason why I wanted to go into filmmaking and documentary filmmaking was to sort of learn more about my family history and this part that my family never talked about. So, yes, it's just a, it's a Japanese-American incarceration, civil rights sort of ideas, you know, like, never again, but, you know, there was a time when we stripped Americans of their citizenship, so you just got to be vigilant about that, but then also Doctor Who, you know, it was like... It was Somebody <laughs> suggested the, the panel yesterday. Oh, yes. The, 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 um, the, it should make, like, doing something... For Doctor Who, like he's going, it would be a good Doctor Who story. To it go would back to yes. that whole internment um, crisis during the Second World War. It would be a great story. As an attorney, I can tell you that we had to read the Korematsu Supreme Court decision in law school in the 1990s, and you're sitting there and you can't believe that this is actually something that nine people put together and thought was a yes. good legal decision. Yes. yes. And it has been overturned by the current Supreme Court, but it's been overturned in such a way as to allow it to continue happening. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the frightening thing about that. That's amazing. Yes. Um, and so it's a, it's something that you it keeps coming up in the news in terms of its relevance. So I know so that is, that's the interesting thing though too is just like okay I have I have the the Japanese American people who are like wait you're doing something on Doctor Who now but but it's been going on for so long and then they're also just like oh my gosh I have so many Doctor Who fans in my family so they're excited to see your it. mother came to Newport. Uh, Newport Beach Film <laughs> Festival, and she's going to be appearing at uh, Gannif, uh, uh, Chicago Tardis. Chicago Tardis. So she's going to come and go over. She's just like, oh, I want to go to a Doctor Who convention. <laughs> so, so it's like it's building out the whole thing. It's the first time. Chicago Tardis will be the first time I've ever been in Chicago, period. So for me, it's going to be like, I'm just so excited about that. They call it the Windy City for a reason, so I dress warm. Go. Yeah, I got you brought your, your heavy coat. Yeah. And it is cold here today on Long Island. So Matthew, not just Doctor, you have also written a Disney movie you have written for the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Tell us about some of your other amazing projects you've done during your writing career. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, I did a... I basically worked as a writer from graduating film school and so through the late, mid, late 80s I sort of was building up credits with working with people like... Um, Bernard Rose, who did, um, we did Paper House together and, and a couple of TV movies, and we did, and I did some TV movies of my own. And, and then I started doing things like Lorna Doon, and then, and then, and then I got picked up to come and write Young Indy. And once I got picked up to write Young Indy, that was when I first came to America in the 90s. Through the 90s, I did quite heavy franchise pieces, you know, like Indy, Lassie. Um, and I'd done stuff for Jim Henson and all of those I could list that. And, and then eventually um, and, then, and, then, and then I started on uh, Emperor's New Groove and, and, uh, and then I did then while that was still being written I did in I took time off to do Doctor Who and did that for like a year and then finally um, Emperor's New Groove comes out which was the out of the big franchise things was the most original of the projects um, and then in the and then in the two thousands went back to making smaller films. 
and that's when I really got to know Vanessa when we were making films like Your Good Friend, Bar America, or other projects. And also, I was teaching. That's how our relationship started off. And you were talking about yeah, Your Good Friend uh, last night. That is a movie about, I believe the tagline is kosher porn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that, that's the thing that people take away from the trailer. Yeah, no. Um, the, uh, it was, uh, um, I think the tagline, kosher porn would have been a better tagline. <laughs> the tagline was, you know, um, a rabbi, a pornographer, a shared dream. Um, but, but kosher porn is much better. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. I'm going to go right now to Tubi, change the thing to kosher porn, um, and we'll certainly get more hits. Yeah, it's a mocky docky drama. It's a mocky docky drama. Yeah. That's, a, that's wonderful. And I'll also point out now that Doctor Who is getting a Disney Plus distribution deal in the United States, oh, yeah, we can't do kosher porn. But we'll be able to watch the TV movie and the Emperor's New Groove on the same platform back to back. That's good. Oh, yes. And uh, I think you, um, Disney Plus are going to do a new Young Indiana Jones. I keep on being told that because it's the 30th and they're, they're slowly putting that together. And they carry Lucasfilm stuff. So Disney Plus is going to be Matthew Plus pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so then the TV movie, are they going to release it on Disney Plus? That we don't know. Right now, different eras of Doctor Who are on different platforms between BritBox and HBO Max, so I don't quite know where the TV movie falls. I don't, because I don't think it is available digitally. No, it's a, it's a hard one to get a hold of. I, I have the DVD, which is how I watched it right. most recently. Yeah. But hopefully we can get all of Matthew's work together <laughs> on Disney+. Plus. That would be nice. And Vanessa, anything else you want to pitch that's, uh, that's coming up for you? Oh, I mean... I... Well, I'm just happy this documentary's over, but going to do some more work, uh, some some uh, films within the Japanese-American community. I have a feature that I'm writing, which is um, about... I want it to take place in Wisconsin, which is sort of like a bridesmaids meets uh, romancing the stone with Goonies adventure for um, finding Capone's lost gold Um, but then also there's a short that I I, the first thing that I ever wrote uh, when Matthew was my professor it was a short film about 9-11 because I was in New York for 9-11 but it's sort of told through this uh, a breakup relationship it's a short I, I just rediscovered it and it's actually I feel like I'm it's been long enough, and I'm ready as a filmmaker to sort of tell this. I'm confident to tell this story in a way, like yes. a visual poetry of heartbreak. Yeah. So the Japanese internment camps, 9-11, <laughs> and a time travel comedy. Yeah. There you go. Matthew, Vanessa, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so thank much you. for this. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Looking forward to hearing you. Thank you very much to Jason. He recorded that interview at L.I. Who. On episode 239 of Trap One, Jason talked to Matthew Jacobs, Vanessa Yule. He also spoke to John Davey, who is the man behind many of the monsters from Doctor Who, Sonia Khan actor, Bhavnisha Palmer, and Wendy Padbury, who played 1960s companion Zoe. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Join us next time. We'll be talking about something else from the world of Doctor Who with another panel. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.